Good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet and I'm here with the late Patty Fink who snuck in just under the wire. Uh, we're getting back to pre-pandemic. Uh, oh, we are, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, our, and, and Laurent is off today because it is Father's Day and he's busy being a father. Right. Our Happy guest, Father's Day, everybody. Yeah, and our guest, uh, Gay, Bur- uh, Gay, Gay, right. Yeah, I'm, my math is not working today. <laughs> Greg Burke is uh, the author of the new book, Gay, Catholic, and American, My Legal Battle for Marriage Equality and Inclusion. He's also a dad. Happy Father's Day, Greg. Uh, and he's, thank you, thank you. And Greg, you're one of the named defendants in the Obergefell marriage equality decision, but you and I met about 12 years ago at the beginning of your activist career right here in Dallas, actually in Irving, at Boy Scout headquarters when you came into town to deliver petitions to the Boy Scouts. Right, right. You know, that that was the, really the start of my activist career if that's what you call it but that was the first time i really kind of stepped out of my comfort zone and and wanted to try to do something to try to change some of the injustice that i saw and and some of it that i experienced personally but yeah that that was quite a trip for me coming to texas because i really felt like it was hostile territory um with the boy scouts and and in fact it turned out to be that way as you witnessed in person yes the boy scouts did everything they could to make everybody who was there participating and covering it uncomfortable and in fact yeah. Uh, after after I was there, they stopped answering any calls I had. You know, yeah. they're, they're uh, yeah, media people. They just cut me off. So much security. The security that was there that day really, you know, still made, makes an impression on me. It's like, what, what did they think was going to happen? I mean, I, I think they knew we were coming. Um, you know, they had warning that this was going to happen because we were trying, you know, we were trying to engage them in conversation and say, you know, look, we're delivering, I can't remember, three million uh, petition signatures to you. And, um, you know, that that's a lot of people's voices represented. And, and we just wanted to talk to them. And, and instead, they showed up with security and wouldn't let us get anywhere near their building. Um, it was just not not a very Boy Scout uh, way to, to greet people. Well, it was um, threatening to them. Been, you were there in your Eagle Scout uniform. That's threatening. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. my son was there, too. You know, we had our whole family, and my son was there with me. You know, I was a scout leader, and he was in my troop, so he was there in uniform, and we had several other folks who were there in uniforms. I mean, I wasn't the only story. Um, Jen Tyrell probably had the most compelling story of the people who were there to, to do the petition deliveries because she was, like me, she was uh, forced to, to leave her role as a leader with her son's Cub Scout. Uh, Cub Scout pack, and uh, she just drew a lot of uh, national attention. And you know, the Boy Scouts were really feeling a lot of heat at that time, a lot of pressure because they they were going to great lengths to kind of smoke out and weed out people when they found out that they were were gay or lesbian leader, leaders or uh, gay youth in the program. So you know, that they were I, I think actually looking for people to to kind of make examples of. Right. What I found most egregious about that whole thing is they were kicking out kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of times it was kids who were almost to the point of of having their eagle rank. I don't know if you heard the story of Ryan Andresen or not, but he was Mm -hmm. he was um, a young man in in California who completed his eagle project, went through his eagle board of review, and and he was refused his eagle rank. I mean, it, it still breaks my heart 
when when I think about it and talk about it because you know Ryan had a great project. He you know he was a, a perfect scout. You know he didn't have any any strikes against them, and and yet they decided that they were going to deny his eagle rank just because he was openly gay. Um, that, that it's just it was a very dark time for for the Boy Scouts, and and they've moved on. You know, thankfully, I won't say it's perfect, but but it's gotten better, um, and and I think they're trying to move in the right direction. Do you know one of the things that that happened was I got a hold of their so-called pedophile list, and it was so obvious going after going through the pages and pages and pages of names that the people on their pedophile list were men who showed up, had no experience as Boy Scouts, didn't have kids themselves, so they had no reason to be there, and yet they blamed gay and les and lesbian scout leaders and gay and lesbian right. scouts. It, it, it was yeah. just nauseating reading this list of theirs that had been compiled over decades. And right. it took me five minutes of reading to find this has nothing to do with gay. I find it kind of ironic that um, that you have this organization with this pedophile list and then we're also going to talk about the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like, wow. Yeah, we're bringing, bringing it all together here today, right? Exactly. Right, right back to your book. <laughs> yeah. Right. So but exactly. your experience with the Catholic Church has mostly been good. Yeah, I, I would say that's true. I mean, there have been episodes and, and a few things that, that I like to talk about. But uh, overall, you know, considering I've been, uh, I've been practicing my faith since, you know, basically birth. I've never been away from the church. Um, I've been an active Catholic for all of my life, which is almost 64 years. So that's a long time. And I'll tell you that, you know, over that period, I came out when I was 19. So I've been out and practicing my Catholic faith for over, well over 40 years. And wow. I've never found them to be um, inconsistent. Um, you know, I, I've found, you know, my ways to cope and, and my ways to deal with things. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's been a, a decent ride for me it's certainly something that i've found rewarding and, and something that you know, i do like to talk about and, and i do talk about it in the book i mean I, I think everybody should have um that access to a faith community that is welcoming and supportive and, and overall the catholic church has been that for me and your kids were baptized in the uh catholic church it is father's day let's just talk a little bit about how you yeah. became a father <laughs> Right, right. It is Father's Day, and happy Father's Day to everybody who's listening out there. Um, you know, my husband and I have two adopted children. They are um, now 23 and 22. Dang. Uh, I had to text them. <laughs> yeah, I know. So they're out of the house. We got the, we got the empty nest. Um, but I had to text them and say, look, I'm going to be on the radio for an hour. So if you're going to call... You know, make sure it's you know before two or after three. And, mm -hmm. and so they got the message. One, our son in uh, Orlando, Florida, FaceTimed a little while ago, and we got to catch up. And the other son is uh, active duty military in Alaska, so he's probably still sleeping. You know, there's a four hour time difference, so I, I won't hear from him <laughs> for a while. But uh, yeah, we've we've had a, a wonderful run with our children. Um, it, back in about 1998, Michael and I started talking about wanting to uh to have a family and adopt children and and i don't know if you remember what it was like in 1998 but i can tell you despite what you see now where you can pick up the the, the new york times like i did today and you know see this feature on gay dads and you know just 
dozens of them. Um, people weren't doing that in 1998. It was really, really uncommon, um, especially in places like Kentucky. Uh, there was only one uh, adoption agency in the state that would work with same-sex couples, one, an independent adoption agency. Uh, and we only knew of one other couple that had uh, successfully adopted children before we adopted ours. So it's like we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have a network. We didn't really have role models. Um, it, it wasn't commonly done. So it, it was really quite a an act of, of faith, I think, on our part that we decided that, yeah, this is something we want to do. And we, we think we can do it and make it work. Um, you know, there were many times over the last 22, 23 years that I didn't feel like it was working so well. But, you know, I think every parent feels that way. Um, as with any endeavor in life, you have successes and you have failures and you have things you wish you did differently and you have things that you absolutely love and cherish about the experiences that you've had. So we've, um, you know, Michael and I, my husband, Michael and I uh, have had a wonderful uh, family life over all those years. You know, I, we didn't talk about the fact that Michael and I are, are almost 40 years together. So in March, we're going to celebrate our 40th anniversary. Congratulations. Um, so had, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but we've had like these huge chunks of, of our lives. So we, you know, we had 20, uh, let's see. So I got to do some math here. I shouldn't know these numbers, but we met in 82 and we didn't have kids until 99. So, you know, we had 17 years together, um, together just as a couple before we had children. So that's like a lifetime by itself, especially in gay years, right? You know, to be together for 17 years. And then, then you have a family and children. And, you know, then you have another 20, 21 years with the kids in the house and, you know, doing all the, the parenting things that you do. Um, and now we're moving into like that third phase of, of life and, and our relationship where the kids are out of the house. Again and, um, you know, it's just the two of us, which is, you know, good and bad. It's a mixed blessing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been interesting to, to have gone through these phases of life that, we see so many other straight couples go through, um, and you know, growing up and as a young person, especially a young man, being a gay man, um, you know, I, I guess I never thought I would have the ability to to live a life like this because people weren't doing it. But you know, somehow, some way, we managed to get it done. It, and the story, especially of your uh, having your first child, it is a really wonderful story that involves her, uh, his mother. Well, yes, we, um, we, we, it's interesting the way things work with private adoption agencies. Um, of course, we didn't know that much about it. We didn't have that experience. We tried to get educated as we started the process. But, um, but what we had to do working with an independent agency was to prepare something like a, a marketing brochure, kind of a, a profile of our family and you know, our siblings and our parents and, you know, our jobs and, so we had to prepare like a marketing profile where we kind of put it out there that, yes, we are a gay couple, but, you know, we're churchgoers, we have good jobs, we have great families that support us, all that had to be put out there. And so we were kind of at the, at the mercy or the whim of an expectant mother to select our unique family as, as a home for her child. So, um, so we did that. And uh, fortunately, there was a mother who was expecting and she selected our family. 
Now, she was not, uh, she was a wonderful person, still is. We keep in contact with her. Um, but she needed, she needed some help. So, you know, Michael and I did everything we could to help her through her pregnancy. Um, you know, we took her to some of her, her doctor visits. When she delivered the child, you know, she called us and we picked her up and took her to the hospital. Um, you know, it was, it was a very, um, very friendly, supportive, uh, nurturing, almost family-like relationship that, that we had with our first child's mother. And like I said, we've continued to keep a, a good relationship with with her and, and our other child also um, with her mother as well. So we thought that was important for our children, that they would have access to their birth mothers and know who their birth mothers are. And uh, Do they and have so any they kind of... That. Do, do they have any kind of relationship with their mother other than, oh, she's the person who gave birth to us? They do. Um, I, I don't think it's close, as close as some other mother-child relationships are. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they do have that relationship. They see them, you know, so both of the birth mothers live here in the, in the Louisville area, the Louisville metropolitan area. But, you know, our children now are, are grown and scattered, right? So. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have some contact with with them, you know, maybe occasional text, but but not very close. Okay. Um, um, they consider us. I mean, they truly consider us their parents. Uh, sure. And they don't have any regrets or you know misgivings about that. They love us and and we love them, and, and it's it's really been a remarkable relationship. I think that we've developed over all these years. Have the moms ever told you why they chose you? What it was about your profile that kind of sparked their interest? No, they never did. I think we, and we didn't ask. Um, it's kind of it seemed too personal, but you know, we've speculated on that a lot. And, and I think one, one of the issues that you know, at least my husband and I have talked about is that, that perhaps they, they saw our family, um, and they saw that there wasn't another woman. So there would never be a competition for who, who's the mother, mm-hmm. right? Because that happens with some adoptions, um, where there's friction between the birth mother and the adoptive mother. Um, and even with, you know, step, step families. So that, that's always been one of our theories. And I think it's almost impossible to prove that. I guess I could ask them about it one of these days. But, and but I think they might not have even thought about that. They might not have even thought about that consciously. But unconsciously, there was that, okay, I'm not competing with anybody here. Yeah, right. I, I do think yeah. that that was I mean, because I, I have thought about it. Um, like, why did they pick us? And that's the only thing really I've been able to come up with that made much sense to me, other than other than the fact that I said, you know, we're, we're, we had been together at that time for 17 years. So we were together. We were a couple. We were stable. We had good jobs. You know, we had a house. You know, we had family that was supportive. So, you know, we had, I think, the kind of home atmosphere that an, an expected parent or was would be looking for to place a child. You know, if they had to place a child, you want to put them in a situation where their child was given um, lots of opportunities. And, and I think that was another important factor to the mothers. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I do have to take you to task for, when Laron, our co-host, when he and Danny, his husband, uh, decided to have a child, Patty and I harassed him endlessly till they went to Canada, got married first. <laughs> They weren't shacking up. <laughs> they weren't shacking up like you two were. <laughs> well, we couldn't go to Canada in, in uh, 1999 because it wasn't legal there yet. Uh, you know, that was... There was nowhere. 
was it, nowhere it was then. Not, not anywhere. <laughs> exactly. And we, when we did get married, and Michael and I legally got married in 2004, Ontario was the only place in North America mm-hmm. at that time where we could go to get legally married. Um, so we got it done as quick as we could. But, yeah, we couldn't get married before we had kids. Okay, well, we got, we'll we got give it you, all done eventually. We'll give you a pass on that one. <laughs> But Laurent, I know, felt harassed about uh, getting married first because we wanted them to have a legitimate child. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so, when, so you were married in 2004 and you were part of this um, amazing landmark case. Did you – I know there were many, like, that I, many people I know in, in my orbit who thought, well, I need to go get an American marriage now. And, and go do this again. Right. You know, right. like, did you make that decision right. to do that, or um, did you think, well, my my marriage in, in Ontario is sufficient for for a lifetime? Um, yeah, people have also commented to us about that. That you know, inspect if, it, if you inspect the case, our case was about recognition of, of a legal marriage. So we were legally married in Canada. So it would have. Meant, you know, after 2015, after the ruling, um, I don't think I don't even know that we could have gotten married legally in Kentucky because we were already recognized as being legally married in Canada. Right. So I don't know if we'd have to get a Canadian divorce first so we could get a Kentucky marriage in America. I don't know. I'm not an attorney, but <laughs> but that, that was that was kind of the po- that was kind of the point um, of our lawsuit was that you know we have a marriage that's legally recognized in Canada. And the Commonwealth of Kentucky should be required to to respect that and acknowledge that. Greg, and they did not. We need to yeah. take a break. Let's talk about that after okay. the break and how you became the marriage okay. equality uh, couple in Kentucky or one of them. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. Josh is on the board for us. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. This is Rollins Gellin, and I'm listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3, and darn glad to be doing it. And I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. Our guest is Greg. Greg, how do you pronounce your last name? It's pronounced Burke. So Burke, kind of okay. The spelling. Yeah, right. It, it, Ignore the O. Okay, uh, Burke, uh, spelled for people yeah, who want right. to buy your book, B-O-U-R-K-E. Uh, his new book is Gay, Catholic, and American, My Legal Battle for Marriage Equality and Inclusion. <laughs> when is it coming out? The publication date is going to be September 1st of this year. It's being uh, released then, sequenced, to, so that it'll be in bookstores for LGBTQ History Month in October. Ah. But it's available it's available now, so you can pre-order, you know, if you call your local bookstore, or uh, it's available online on Amazon or the University of Notre Dame Press. Um, there, there are a lot of ways you can pre-order, but the publication date will be September 1st. Okay, great. Um, and I'm glad it's coming mm-hmm. out, you know? <laughs> well, I had to throw that in there. It, right? So it's like, you know, and, and I think you've seen, you know, kind of an advanced copy of the book, mm-hmm. and it doesn't end with marriage equality in 2015. You know, I guess, you know, that's kind of the made perhaps one of the highlights of my life or the highlight of my life. But, but there's a lot that happened after 2015, I think, that, that's relevant um, to, to that whole narrative of us being, you know, active, faithful Catholics and Catholic families. So um, certainly 
there's a lot of detail in, in the book about the marriage equality case. And, and that's why I wanted to write the book, because, um, as you as you know, a lot of queer history just does not get captured. Um, right. And and so uh, since we were a part of a couple of things that, that actually kind of moved the ball forward a little bit, we felt like we had an I say we, I wrote the book, but, you know, it might as well be my husband and me because it, it's our story and he helped me with it a lot. But, um, but yeah, we, we happened to be involved in a lot of things that were kind of historic in nature and so we felt like we had an obligation to kind of c- capture some of that for uh, historical reasons and, and that's why we wrote the book well and patty during the break was saying uh that there's a new uh level of parenthood oh i was just saying there's you know there's another phase coming for them and um i said it's when the, it's when we say are you gonna give us grandkids <laughs> <laughs> I know. We keep wondering. Our kids, well, so our kids are, are um, getting to be of the age where they might be thinking about settling down. You know, they're both involved with other people. And, um, you know, it might happen. We do have grandcats right now, and that's pretty cool. I mean, I like that. But, um, yeah, I know. It's going to be a whole other generation. And, and just think about how how different it's going to be for our kids. Um, when, I, when I say that, I mean, like my kids. Um, but, you know, all the, the kids are being raised now by same-sex couples and, and how different the world is going to be when it's their turn to, you know, partner up and have children. Um, it was already quite different for, for our kids. They got to go and be kind of spokespeople in their Catholic school, their Catholic high school and their Catholic elementary school and defend us and defend their parents and their, their parents' lifestyle whenever they had to. Um, so, you know, by the time they got through all that, it's like, people were pretty much okay with the idea of having same-sex couples as parents because they knew somebody. Right. Um, in fact, in many cases, they knew quite a few people um, because after us, I, I know in, in Louisville, as I'm sure it is there, um, there were lots of same-sex couples who, who wanted to have kids and did have sure. kids and create families. So um, the world has changed just so darn much. Um, it's exciting and, to see what you know, kids uh, kids ahead growing up can maybe be themselves and not have to go through what all of us went through um, from an early age and and the yeah. the trials and tribulations that we all we all have stories you know um, a whole a whole world full of stories I don't have board. stories all of my friends from high school came out <laughs> <laughs> well, then you'll have to share well, other people's lucky. stories. Josh know? doesn't have stories. He came out of the womb gay. <laughs> <laughs> he came flying out of the womb. So, um, it's funny. Yeah. You know, but I, th- I think it's it, it, I, f- I feel this pall over our state of Texas as they they try to outlaw the teaching of of um, black and brown history in our state. Mm-hmm. And the complicity of the, of white people throughout it, and so I, it, it's disturbing in a, in a profoundly um, core way that the GOP here wants to um, change history and the teaching of history. So I I think this is really just a just from my perspective, and you may not have this in in Kentucky, but. Um, the, this writing of this book is very important because documenting our history, it could go away one day. You know, I mean, right. people right. could actually yank this stuff and say, we're going to teach future generations completely differently and leave out all of this stuff. And it'd be the straight washing of, of all of our lives. 
And, uh, yeah, right. So I mean, that, that's powerful yeah, that sure. you've written this book and documented for the future what uh, right. your story. I, I want to talk about. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was so going to say I want to talk. On that. It's like you could you could take what you said about Texas and insert Kentucky right there because we're seeing similar, you know, almost the same patterns playing out here. Kentucky is a very conservative red state. Um, you know, same thing is happening with the discussions about critical race theory. It's concerning for us. Um, but yeah, that's why it's important to do things like write these books and have them committed to, you know, paper as, as well as, you know, all the other formats that are out there. Because I, I think um, by having the University of Notre Dame, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this at some point, but the University of Notre Dame publishing this book, um, th- that is probably the most significant thing in my mind about the book. You know, I was doing an interview the other day and they asked me what's been the most rewarding aspect of, of writing and publishing this book. And, and my answer is always, the fact that the University of Notre Dame, what is considered one of the most conservative religious institutions in the country, was willing to take this manuscript and turn it into a book and put their full faith and power behind the development and the marketing of it is has been just unbelievable to me and phenomenal. That's so, amazing. <laughs> did they tell you to make, why? It's going to be hard. Yeah, no. did, did they tell you why they decided to publish it? You know, I've asked that quite a few times, and, and the response has been along the lines it's like they've been wanting to do something like this for years but they just didn't have the right story they didn't have you know the right message and they felt like this was the right message at the right time you know also it doesn't hurt that i'm i'm an alum of the university of notre dame um, (laughs) and i have actively been part of an lgbt alumni group that has been lobbying for recognition and inclusion at notre dame you know, we've been working for over 20 years to get this group recognized, uh, and, and still we're not there. Also, Greg, we're very Greg meet Patty, who went to Baylor. We're, we've been trying to do that for <laughs> 20, some, at least 20 years. And when we, and when so we, hard, when we made a T-shirt, you know, like like about, you know, Baylor University Gay and Lesbian Al- Alumni Association, like we got a cease and desist letter to stop making the shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. the name was there. Yeah, they didn't I, want anything to do with us, you know. I would think one reason they felt that this was the right book is because there is nothing anti-Catholic in this book at all. Yeah, I think it's very pro-Catholic. Yeah. Uh, you know, ir- ironically, Michael and I have been some of the biggest defenders of the faith that you probably have ever met, um, just because we refuse you know, to walk away and to be really harshly critical of, of the church. And, you know, the church has its flaws. I understand that. But, um, yeah, it's not anti-Catholic. I think it's very pro-Catholic. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this move in the last day or so um, that's been in the news about um, the Catholic bishops meeting to um, basically to come, come up with a way to deny President Biden communion based upon his pro-choice stance while, you know, there's, there are tons of, of politicians out there who are pro-death penalty and quite vocal about it? And they don't deny, they don't even right. talk about denying them communion. Right. I mean, it's, it, the, the Amer- I have to differentiate between the Roman Catholic Church and the American Catholic Church. The American Catholic Church is, is really controlled by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which has gotten so extremely conservative over you know the last so many years. But you know, this is an effort by the U.S. CCB to... to to implement policies that would do exactly what you're talking about, control who 
can and can't. I mean, it's it focused right at, at the president, but um, it, it's it's really just so partisan. It, you know, it, it's taking an attack on, on to one person. I mean, there are so many people that that, that could be targeted under church policies and doctrine, and they don't. Um, so that makes me really uncomfortable because the, the church is supposed to be staying out of politics and political issues. Um, and, and this is an example where they clearly are not, in my opinion. So it's disturbing to me. Um, it won't be successful. I've been reading a little bit about this. And for something like this to, to take place, there would have to be a unanimous vote by the USCCB to do it, or they'd have to have two-thirds um, with papal approval. And those neither of those are going to happen. So as, as President Biden said when he was asked about it, um, he's not worried about it, he, and he doesn't think it's going to happen. That's kind of the way I feel about it, too. But it gives some, it gives some people a platform, gives some of the most radical bishops a platform to try to make a statement um, and, and take advantage of a situation, which, you know, it makes me crazy because as a Catholic, I know there's so much more that we could be doing. You know, we should be working to end the homeless crisis. And, you know, with there, just you name it, there are like a thousand things that we ought to be concerned about as Catholics before we start worrying about who gets communion and who does. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about how you became one of the marriage equality uh, plaintiffs. And you were uh, one of the named defendants in the actual Obergefell decision. We call it Obergefell v. Hodges, but that's a shortened version of the name. Uh, Burke is in there along with all of those other names in the official name of of the case. So right. how did right. you? So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, to, to put some some meat on that, um, it's a Burgerfell in it at all. But there, are, so people, and they often don't realize that. But there were thirty seven plaintiffs who were part of Burgerfell v. Hodges. Thirty seven. So there were thirty adults and seven youth plaintiffs who were members of that case. Um, it just happened to have Jim's name on it. But, um, you know, and Jim is always very gracious to point this out. And, uh, you know, we try to do, do the same as well. But that, that case represented um, four different states. So the states of Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, and Michigan were all represented. They were consolidated at the, at the circuit court level and moved forward uh, as a consolidated case under the name of, of Burgerfell v. Hodges. So, you know, that, that's kind of how we all merged together at one point. But our Kentucky case started... In uh, 2013, uh, we filed a, a lawsuit against the the, uh, the sitting governor at that time, who was uh, Steve Bashir and our uh, Attorney General Jack Conway. They're both Democrats, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so we we filed a lawsuit against them, saying that our constitutional rights were being uh, were were being impacted by the fact that Kentucky would not recognize our marriage. And we were the first Southern state to. Um, File a challenge in a, in a federal court against a um, against a constitutional ban that, that was passed. So you probably remember in 2000, 2004 plus there were a lot of states that were passing these constitutional amendments where the people showed up and you know they voted. Like in Kentucky, we voted seventy five percent of the voters. And Texas in two thousand four, two thousand five. Oh, we were yeah. 2005, but yeah. we were also 75 yeah. against us and 25. And it was a superdoma, you yeah. know, so that you couldn't even, yeah. you know, there was no chance of, of recognition. Right. Right, so. right. And so, you know, we were all going through a lot of that. Um, and, and it was just so painful for us. 
But, um, but yeah, so in 2013, Michael, after, after the Windsor case and the Prop 8 cases were announced, um, that caught our attention. And, and I'm sure it caught you know, every other state that was like Kentucky that didn't have marriage equality. Um, it got their attention, too. And that's why you saw practically every state coming forward with, uh, with a lawsuit to, to kind of challenge some of these bans, whether it's constitutional or legislative. Um, you know, the, the people were, were coming forward and saying, this isn't right. Based on what we heard in, in the Prop 8 decision and based on what we gleaned from, from the Windsor decision, we think we've got a chance here, too. We think our marriage should be recognized. And so that's why Michael and I got involved. The, um, there were a couple of attorneys here in town who were looking for plaintiffs for a case. You know, they were, um, I think, a couple of very progressive folks. Very, You know, it was a two-person lawyer shop in an old um, Victorian house in, in, in Louisville, old Louisville. And, uh, you know, it was not what you would call you know, a high-profile case. I mean, we, um, you know, we had a couple, two attorneys and two plaintiffs, my husband and me, and we got together and we said, you know what, we, nobody else seems to think we can do this, but we think we can do this. And, and so that's why we, we filed our case in the, the Western District of uh, the federal court system here in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, that's and really um, you had a little bit of uh, activism experience already. Uh, you had spoken to the press before. So that made you kind right. of the right person to... Uh, to represent the LGBT community in Kentucky. Um, most states had multiple cases because, like yours, was to file for recognition, whereas some of the cases were to uh, uh, ask for the right to marry. And in Jim Obergefell's right. case, it was, it was a recognition as well on a death certificate. On a death certificate, and that's all he was yeah, looking right. for. And I think one of the right. reasons that right. it was named after him was... That was the case that really tugged at people's hearts, because the press well, followed him when it, they got married, and it, uh, yeah, yeah, it did. It was a touching story. Um, our attorneys, you know, actually, their their um, what our attorneys told us was that when all four of the states were uh, overturned at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, we we each had to individually file appeals to the Supreme Court um, from each state. So it became Obergefell because um, they beat Kentucky, I think, uh, but our attorney said by seven minutes because oh theirs was the first file of the four states. So it could have been Burke versus Bashir, um if we'd been, you know, seven or eight minutes sooner with our filing. At least that's what our attorneys tell us. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's it was amazing. a good choice, you know, though. Uh, we love Jim. Uh, oh, well, God, yeah, we do, too. I love yeah. him. We, we, um, he actually did a nice um, review, wrote a blurb for me for the book. He's um, been very supportive. And you might, I don't know if you know, but you know, Jim wrote a book too, Love Wins, mm-hmm. that came out shortly after uh, after the case. He, he worked with the writer. But um, there's a chapter in his book about about us and our family. And um, and we, you know, we went to a couple of Jim's book talks and, and signings and, and we kind of, you know, were there with him to support him. So he is, yeah, he's great. He's been really awesome. He's been to Dallas several times. Yeah, well, he was yeah. here um, right uh, sometime during Marriage Equality Weekend. Uh, Brian and I got to meet him, and we have a lovely picture with him over at the Roundup Saloon. Oh, cool. Um, but then he was here for Black Tie Dinner about a year and a half, two, two and a half years later. And I walked up to him. He recognized me, and I said, I have to thank you for 
uh, what you did because it was so meaningful to me. And then I said, oh, you don't know, but Brian died. And uh, having, um, uh, ha- having been married, as much as you talk about the importance of it in your relationship, it made it so much easier that week and months after Brian died to have been his husband. And to have it right. reflected properly in the official records. Yeah. At right. midnight, I didn't have to call, you know, at the hospital, I didn't have to call his mother Gosh. to make final decisions. Well, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. So there are so, you know, we heard about all the benefits, um, you know, the 1,000 benefits that HRC kept telling us about that, that go along with being recognized as a married couple. And, you know, death benefits are a huge part of that. Oh, um, unbelievable. Just. I mean, that's what Amy Windsor's case was all about, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things people ask us all the time about some of the benefits of having our marriage recognized, and one of the biggest for our family is that we pay so much less federal tax being able to file as a married couple yes. with children, you know, when we had children. So we figured out, you know, if you figure you've been together for 39 years and, you know, our marriage has only been recognized for about six um, you know, there were a lot of years we paid a special penalty because we couldn't file as a married couple. Now, I know a lot of people talk about the marriage tax. Every case, every person, every case is, is different. But in our case, we were paying about $4,000 a year extra federal income tax just because we couldn't have our marriage recognized by the Commonwealth of mm-hmm. Kentucky. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. There's all the, you know, as you said, all the, all the things that go along with um, – estate taxes and, and transfer property and everything that comes automatically to people when they're recognized as legally married. And, um, you know, straight people took that for granted sure. um, because that's the way it was. But so we in the LGBT community had to go through all kinds of efforts, as I'm sure you probably did. Michael and I have spent a fortune on attorney fees over our 40 years together before our marriage was recognized just having legal work done to make sure we had protections in place so that property would transfer and you know we'd do the best that we could to to make sure our kids were taken care of right Um, greg we have to take a break yeah um right you're listening to lambda weekly we're talking to greg burke his book is gay catholic and american my legal battle for marriage equality and inclusion uh we'll have more with greg right after this hi this is valetta lill and i listen to lambda weekly I hope that you will, too. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with the late Patty Fink. And um, the book we're talking about is Gay, Catholic, and American. Greg Burke is on the phone with us. He is the book's author. Uh, It's coming out in September, but you can pre-order it now. Um, You can get it in print and pixels. (laughs) Either way. (laughs) Um, Greg Talk about the experience of having won the case. You were actually at the Supreme Court at the time of uh, the reading of the um, uh, of the decision. You didn't even know when going into it. We we all had a pretty good idea it was going to be decided on that day, uh, but we didn't know who was writing the decision. Um, talk about how that day just felt. Well. Um you know, you, you mentioned that we had a pretty good idea of when it was going to happen. You know, I think a lot of the plaintiffs uh, were confused, and, and we weren't sure it was going to be that day. Um, in fact, a lot of people thought it was going to be the following Monday, um, 
because that would have been the last possible day that the Supreme Court could release uh, uh, release a decision in, in that um, in that cycle. But you know, Michael and I and our family had planned to to go that weekend and be there on Monday morning because we were just convinced it was going to be that day. Um, but then the ACLU contacted us. I think it was Tuesday of that of that week and said, "No, it, it's going to actually happen." Uh, on the 26th. So we need you to get on a plane as soon as you possibly can and get to town. Um, so, you know, we dropped everything. We excused ourselves from from our jobs and, you know, packed up the kids. Thank God it was the summer. Uh, so the kids were out of school and, and we could do something on, on an impulse like that. But, um, you know, we, we kind of just threw everybody together, got on a plane and, and got to Washington. Um, when, when we got there, um, we were surprised that there were there weren't a lot of other plaintiffs there. Jim Obergefell was there, our family was there, and then there was one other family from Ohio. The uh, York Smith family uh, from Ohio was also there. But you know, as I said, there were 37 plaintiffs, and so as it turned out, there were only um, Jim was there. The four of us in our family, we were all plaintiffs, and uh, and then two from Ohio were present in, in court that day. Um, and we weren't sure. You know, we, we went into court. We sat down. We weren't guaranteed that there was that was going to be the day that the case was called. But um, but in fact, you know, Justice Kennedy um, started. You know, the, the case was called. The decision was rendered. The votes, you know, were announced. Who voted for who? And um, and then the you know the, the whole decision started rolling out in terms of the majority the, the uh, opinion that was written by. Justice Kennedy, and then that was followed by the the um, opposing or dissenting division decision from Justice Roberts. Um, that you know, first of all, you know, we weren't even sure it was going to be that day. So then we found out it was that day, um, and as soon as they announced Justice Kennedy was going to read the majority opinion, like the, the light bulb went off, and you know, we just looked at it and said, we said we won because we knew we had to win if he was reading the. Uh, mm-hmm. opinion right so, because he um, had that, written that the he, he had written the decision in windsor and in lawrence v texas and um, all on the right. all on june 26th and they were all on june 26th which is why they were pretty right, sure right uh yeah i know yeah yeah that's the way it worked out but yeah it was a, it was a it was a glorious day so it's not usual days. for the dissenting de- uh decision to be read but justice roberts right. decided to read his and in in my reading of it, it was, well, congratulations to those couples that will be getting married now. The way you heard it was, well, congratulations to all you people who are going to be getting married now. <laughs> I would ch- you know what? I would challenge anybody to go back and read that dissent um, because it it was it was snarky. It was, you know, I, I felt insulted. Um I felt like I was being lectured to, um, and other people in the room felt the same way. It was just such a downer. Clearly, it was. You know, we wanted to celebrate. It was an important point in American history when this happened. Um, there was, you know, it built for a lot of years. A lot of people worked uh, to, to make that happen, and he didn't really have to do that. So, I mean, he could have written his decision. And filed it and just let that be part of the record. But instead, you know, he had he had to personally put himself out there and read his decision, which again, in my opinion, was was pretty darn um, I don't know, just deflating is the best way to describe it. 
but it didn't last for long because we, you know, we got out of court and there was a big party outside and everybody was, you know, <laughs> was reveling in, in, in and love wine marriage, right? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, all over the country, you know, it's, it's so funny. We talk to people, Michael and I, uh, all the time, and they tell us, "I remember exactly where I was when I got the news." Um, mm-hmm. And you know, maybe you're the same way, but a lot of people tell us that, and that's how you know that you've really been involved in something that's made an impact when people all over the country say, yeah, I remember when I found out I was doing this, or this is how we celebrate it. Um, and and that's, that makes it so rewarding and fulfilling to have been just a, a small part of that. Um, you ran into Justice Kagan literally that day. Yeah. Oh, how fun. It was like, yeah, it's, <laughs> It really was. It, it, I swear, it was like uh, something you see in a movie or, or uh, a sitcom. I was at the coffee bar in the cafeteria at the Supreme Court, and you know, I had my coffee, and I turned around, and I was going back to the table where my family was. And I, as I turned around, it's like I looked up, and she was right there. It's like we all—I almost ran into her with my coffee. And boy, wouldn't that have been embarrassing? <laughs> but it's like we just—we just stopped, and we kind of locked eyes, and. I just say, excuse me, and she just smiled at me. But in that knowing way, like things, are, everything's going to be all right, right? So, um, yeah, that's it was, so cool. It was really kind of interesting. Yeah, and, and then and when they right before we went in, well, yeah, when we went in, and then when uh, during the reading, Mama Sotomayor uh, was staring at you <laughs> through the reading. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I do. I write about that in the book. It's um, it was it was real. It wasn't creepy at all, but it was noticeable. Right. So I, Michael and I were both sitting in our chairs and um, you know, kind of listening to, to the proceedings. And as everything's being read, I kept noticing why is she she's staring just at us. You know how people normally like they'll scan the room or you know they'll, they'll just move their head a little bit. Like she had us locked in her gaze. And um, and Michael and I couldn't talk about it while we were in court. After we got out later and things calmed down, we we both had a chance to say, "Yeah, I saw." You know, he said, "I saw that too." Um, so I don't think either one of us imagined it. But it was that was that look like, "I, you know, I'm taking care of you. Don't you know? You're going to be fine. Don't worry about this. It's, it's all going to work out." And and in fact, it did. So now I, I swear, I hope at some point in my life I have an opportunity to to talk to. Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor and just confirmed that I wasn't imagining things. <laughs> that, that's definitely what we saw. That's that's most amazing, I think, that you ran into to Justice Kagan and she kind of gave you that smile. But she couldn't... Sure. I mean... She couldn't say anything. She, she couldn't say anything. No. Sure, but... No, that would, no. You know, I mean, if she had had her head, you know, hanging down and and you know tears in her eyes or something you you would know that too and yeah right you know so yeah. i mean i think that's really really very cool <laughs> well she already yeah. knew that history was going to be made that day yeah big time yeah yeah right yeah i mean they, they um probably know that almost every day when they render one of those decisions somebody is going to be impacted somebody's life is going to be impacted by whatever they decide but not only that day but for generations going forward mm-hmm. yeah. and i can only think the first thing i thought was they don't have a coffee pot up in their offices you know like i think <laughs> yeah, she's like right? i want to go take a swing through the cafeteria and just be with people this, <laughs> this on this special day 
you know? Uh, yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe she was hoping to have an encounter. Uh, I, I don't know. When you got home and you went to church again, because, again, your Catholic religion is um, very important to you, what was the reaction in church? Were they excited for you? Were they, or could they be? Oh, my gosh. Yes. They, 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 so I would, I would not say that, you know, at the priestly level, yes. But the congregation was so behind us. They knew, you know, because the local media was covering it constantly uh, about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And the people in our church were so supportive of us. All the way through. They always have them, you know, whether it was the Boy Scouts or marriage equality or some of the other things that we haven't talked about, some of the issues that, I, that I've had, we've had with the Archbishop. Um, you know, our parish has been so supportive. So we came back um, and, you know, we were really greeted quite well by our parish. So you would think uh, they're Catholics, you know, they're going to be upset about this. It's like we're challenging all the all the norms and, and the history, and, and it was precisely the opposite of that. And I think the reason why it was that way for us at our parish was because, you know, we've been members there, so i got to do some math again, so I'm guessing it was about 27 years we'd been active members of that church um, when that decision was rendered. We've been there for almost 34 years now. Wow. So we had a long history in that church, and a long history of not just going to church, but uh, and not just writing checks, which we do, but also participating in ministries. I think I mentioned before, um, you know, I've been a communion minister at Lourdes for over 20 years. I've been involved as a Boy Scout leader, a Girl Scout leader. You know, I've been involved in a variety of other ministries. My husband, same thing. He sings in, in the resurrection choir at all the funerals. You know, he's done gardening and baking and just he's a soccer coach. So we've been involved in a lot of the ministries, um, and we're a, really a, a part of the fabric of that community. So people were aware of the fact that we were part of this lawsuit, and, and when we came back, we were kind of treated like champions, which mm -hmm. is probably not what people would have expected coming back to a Catholic church. I certainly wouldn't. Wow. Well, uh, your church is not very... Yes, welcoming the, to you. The church I was raised in, the Southern Baptist Church, made news this week, too. Oh. You know, yeah, they um, made headlines, didn't they, right? Yeah. Their new, um, their new leader. Well, you know, one of the four finalists was um, was a local person here from the local Baptist Seminary who was uh, also extremely conservative. Um, but I, I don't know that they had anybody that didn't fit that bill in, in the, you know, the finalists. Right. So. They're just curbing the tide for now. <laughs> and Josh is giving us the it's time to break signal. Um, Greg, I want to okay. thank you. Uh, the Hour Flew. Uh, the book is Gay, Catholic, and American, My Legal Battle for Marriage, Equality, and Inclusion. It's on pre-order right now. Uh, the author's name is Greg Burke, and that's spelled B-O-U-R-K-E. If you're looking for his book online, you will find it. Uh, to pre-order. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. Please come back. This is, oh. you're a great guest. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I have to say, I, love to. Yeah. I had a, a former co-worker years and years ago who was from Louisville, and she would give us, like, in the afternoon, she would give us lessons on how to say the word Louisville. And You got I, it right. I, you know, I, it took a lot of practice for our whole little group to... <laughs> To make it. it's, it's not natural unless you live here to say it that way. Exactly. So I only do that with, with people I know, you know. Otherwise, I say Louisville. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that's so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no.
<laughs> well, to uh, you and everyone in Louisville. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Do come back. I, I really appreciate y'all having me back. Oh, okay. sh- sure. It was nice to talk to you again after 12 years or so since that uh, Boy yeah. Scout thing. <laughs> that Boy Scout yeah, thing. Let's not wait 12 years to do this again, right? Sounds good. Exactly. And for, okay. for everybody out there, happy Father's Day for all of us here at Lambda Weekly. Have a good week. <laughs>